If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 11. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 11 as we continue our study through this rich gospel that we begun last November. Uh, we will be in 24 through 36 in our time together this morning. So Luke 11 and verses 24 through 36. If you have it, say, I have it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Luke 11, start at verse 24. Let's read this together. The Holy Spirit says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, says Jesus, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in which you, in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Amen. It's God's word. May God write to eternal truths on all of our hearts. There once was a wild duck, and he was flying northward with his companions across Europe during the springtime. Well, en route, he happened to land in a barnyard in Denmark where he quickly made friends with tame ducks that lived there. The wild duck enjoyed the corn and fresh water. He decided to stay for an hour, then for a day, then for a week, and finally for a month. At the end of that time, he contemplated flying to join his friends in the vast Northland, but he had begun to enjoy the safety of the barnyard. And the tame ducks had made him feel so welcome, so he stayed for summer. One autumn day, when his wild mates were flying south, he heard their quacking. It stirred him with delight, and he enthusiastically flapped his wings and rose into the air to join them. Much to his dismay, he found that he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. As he waddled back to safety of the barnyard, he muttered to himself, I'm satisfied here. I have plenty of food and the area is good. Why should I leave? So he spent the winter on the farm. In the spring, when the wild ducks flew overhead again, he felt a strange stirring within his breast, but he didn't even try to fly to meet them. When they returned in the fall, they again invited him to rejoin them, but this time the duck didn't even notice them. There was no stirring within his breast. He simply kept on eating corn, which made him fat. This is a parable that 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Sorian Kierkegaard told. And what Kierkegaard was trying to do 
in that parable was warned against stagnation. He was warning of the dangers that we are all prone to of staying the same, of going comfortable in our comfort, of, as C.S. Lewis would say a hundred years later, finding our place in this world when really it's finding its place in us. The text before us this morning is warning us through various pictures and sayings from our Lord of something we considered last week, which is this. Neutrality, in light of the revelation of who Jesus is and what he's done, is not only not advisable, not only illogical, but downright dangerous. Further, we saw then, as we'll see here, once one encounters the real Jesus, staying the same is not an option. A response is required, for better or for worse. See, Jesus believes that discipleship is not a one-time act, but a continual posture of always working through the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sin, pursue obedience, and reflect the light of Christ, to grow, to be transformed, to more and more resemble Him. You know, about a one, 100 years after the Protestant Reformation, there was a phrase that was coined in Latin that served to exhort we Protestants to remember that the Reformation never truly ceases. The phrase is semper reformanda, which means always reforming. But its intended meaning was not necessarily that the Christian must always be reforming doctrine of the church, but that the Christian ought to always be about reforming themselves. Robert Godfrey explains it thusly, the part of religion that always needs reforming is the human heart. It is vital religion and true faith that must be constantly cultivated. Formalism, indifferentism, and conformism must always be vigorously opposed by a faithful ministry. What this means is the Christian ought to be always in pursuit of growth. They must avoid stagnation lest that strange stirring that we feel for the Lord gets dimmer and dimmer as we embrace the comfort of life in a fallen world and of sameness. We must realize, and I, I realize how little people like this word, we must continually change. There's a stereotype there, isn't it? We don't like change, right? How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Have you heard that one? Change? That's the answer. The stereotype... <laughs> is there that people don't like change, of which the slogan is, this is the way we've always done it, and it's close cousin, we've never done it that way before. What I would suggest to you, however, is that the claim that we don't like change is on the one hand not exactly true, and on the other hand, contrary to what the gospel calls us to in light of our being brought into the kingdom of Christ. We do, in fact, like change. Who doesn't like upgrading to a brand new phone or TV? or getting new furniture, or a new car, or visiting new places, or trying new restaurants, have new adventures, all of which require change in some sense. So it's not that we don't like change. Maybe what's really going on is that we don't want to be changed. Eric Raymond writes to the Gospel Coalition, it's not that we don't like change, we just don't want to be changed. This is because it's hard. It's uncomfortable, often humbling, and painfully difficult. But as Christians, we must remember that change is really at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. When we believe the gospel, we accept the truth that we need to change. We know we are broken people whom God is making new through Christ. Not only us as individuals, but we believe that God is going to make all things new. There's also a cosmic change coming. God not only wants to change your status from non-Christian to Christian, but also change you. He wants, you, wants to make you like his son, Jesus. 
This is what was, what's called sanctification. The biblical idea that those whom God justifies through Christ, he also more and more grows in holiness into the likeness of Christ by the indwelling spirit. Sanctification is the truth that those who have been saved by Christ become more and more new creations, a process that does not cease until we're called to heaven. And that to grow, to be changed, is something that we actually desire because we recognize the sin that still remains in us. And we want to thus eradicate it and look more like the Savior whom we love. I mean, if it's true that before Christ saved us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you believe that? And it's true that we were walking in accordance to the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air. Do you believe that? All this, I'm quoting scripture, okay? And that we were on a trajectory to condemnation and damnation. You believe this? And that Christ saved us by his life and work. You believe this? And it's true that his righteousness was deposited to our bankrupt account. And it's true that we are given the indwelling spirit upon conversion. And it's true that he was the only perfect person. How can we thus say, yes, I recognize all of this. Save me, Lord, but don't change me. How can we say, I recognize Jesus is the only perfect one and the ideal of what we are to li live like before Genesis 3, but I don't want to be like him. In his book, Devoted to God, which we have a copy in the bookstall if you're interested, Sinclair Ferguson says this, if holiness is our heavenly happiness, and true happiness is ultimately holiness, then the prospect of the future will influence and shape our lives here and now. How strange it is that people think, as many seem to do, that they will be happy pursuing holiness there and in heaven if they are singularly unhappy about the calling to pursue it here and now on earth. No, he says, there is continuity. Love holiness now because we love the Holy One, and we will love it all the more then in the presence of the Holy One when we see Him face to face. Despise it now, and we will despise it then too. Or to put this another way around, if we do not desire heaven as a world of holiness and freedom from the presence of sin, a world of delight in Jesus Christ here and now, what possesses us to think we will love it and enjoy it, or Him, then? There could surely be no greater self-delusion. See, in our text this morning, you notice we find four short teachings that seem somewhat disconnected, but they're all connected in that they are asking the same thing that we asked last week, which is this, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you submit to him or will you reject him and go your own way? Will you crown him or will you kill him? If the answer is Jesus is the true king who brings the true kingdom and works by the finger of God, I submit to him. Then this text gives us ways in which we are to grow in him. These four pictures teach us how to change, but not for its own sake, but for the sake of looking more like Jesus. Verse 24 opens with a short parable from Jesus concerning what happens when a demon is cast out of someone, which is something he did in verse 14, yes? He says that when a demon leaves someone... It goes about looking for a place to reside. The person that it left is thus empty in some sense, like a house that has been cleaned up and cleaned out. What happens, however, to a house that is empty is that it will eventually be filled. If the person is not filled with Christ, then the demon will simply return and finding the person clean but unoccupied will again Fill that person now with seven of his friends, and the person will be worse than the first. Okay, this is what Jesus is saying. In other words, even though the demon has been cast out, 
Nothing has been done to prevent re-entry of evil. It wasn't enough, says Jesus, that the mute man has had the demon exercised from him and can now talk if the man doesn't now respond to the kingdom. If he is not filled with Christ, what has really happened? What benefit has there been? Yes, he now has no demon, and he can talk and, and see. There is change, but not a lasting one. He is now an empty house. Sure, it's been swept, it's now clean, but it's still, in fact, empty. Further, says Jesus, if not filled with Christ, he will be filled again with the same demon, but this time he'll bring some of his fellow demons in hopes that it will be harder to get rid of him. The point is this. Exorcism only benefits when one responds to God with faith in Christ. Now we look at this text and we say, I've never had a demon, okay? How can this possibly apply to me? See, there's a lesson here that goes beyond simply demonic possession. What's that lesson? The lesson is that to grow in Christ, to change on the inside into becoming more and more like Jesus, we must work with the Holy Spirit to kill and rid ourselves of sin. But see, if all we do is simply become more externally moral or pious, we've really done nothing. If there's no internal change, if nothing about us is actually internally different, we've done nothing. We may look clean and swept over and put in order, but really we're as empty as we were at first. And further, if we work to kill sin, and can we agree that killing sin is part of the Christian life? If we work to kill sin and that sin is not replaced with Jesus and satisfaction of him being all we really need, that sin being uprooted will be reoccupied, but by some other object that will steal our affections from Christ. Just as much, if not more, than whatever sin it was that ceased. Let's illustrate it like this. I have a flower bed in my front yard. You guys got flower beds? Weeds grow there. Okay? If I do nothing, what will happen? The weeds will multiply. Aren't weeds good at that? Left unchecked, the weeds in my flower bed will get worse and worse and worse. Further, weeds are harmful to other vegetation, so as they multiply, they might very well consume good vegetation. Now, what are my choices? I could do nothing, then we know what will happen, yes? But if I'm sick of the weeds, but I also happen to, as I am, not enjoying yard work in any way, I might get some weed killer, go outside, spray it, and just move on with my life. Then what happens? They'll go away for a while. The flower bed will look pretty good, even if it's empty. But at some point, something is going to replace the weeds. Either the neighborhood stray dogs and cats will use it as a toilet, or more weeds will take the place of the old ones, right? The, the weed killer only does so much good. The best solution is what? to get my butt out there, get in the dirt, rip the weeds out from the roots, and then not leave the flower bed with just dirt, but to plant something new, something beautiful and fragrant like a rose bush or some other pretty and blooming plant. Do you see? If you are going to grow in Christ, you must kill sin or it will be killing you. But it will simply not do to just clean up the outside nor even to just get rid of the sin or bad habit. 
you must replace it with something beautiful and fragrant, namely with Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. If you leave any place vacant or vulnerable by removing it and not replacing it with Jesus, the devil will pounce. Church Father Jerome said this, Just as wise leaders of armies are accustomed to assault, especially those places of a city which are least protected, so that when they have broken in through those places, the protected areas may be easily captured, so also the devil seeks to break in and reach the very citadel of our heart and soul through those places which he sees lying open or perhaps not shut up firmly. See, if our goal is just external morality, wherein people are impressed with how we present ourselves, that's not difficult, is it? And actually, Satan doesn't mind that at all. It's like Donald Gray Barnhouse said, if Satan took over a city, you know what would happen? The streets would be clean. Everyone would be nice to one another. The kids would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. The churches would be full every Sunday. It's just that Christ wouldn't be preached in those churches. Satan doesn't mind mere morality. Anyone could put a showing of being good and upstanding citizen because, let's face it, the bar isn't that high. It's why we like social media so much, right? We can control the narrative there. We get to present ourselves how we want people to perceive us. Even if on those platforms we show that we're messy, even that can be a performance for people to be impressed with how authentic we are. But Jesus isn't after mere morality. He's not after external cleanup or the impressiveness we could achieve before people. He isn't after mere external deeds or performance. Even an atheist can be a good person. Yes? A good person in the context of our fallen world's low bar. Someone who doesn't know Christ can be a good American citizen who votes, who is a good spouse and a parent and employee and gives to charity. Right? What Jesus is after is something only he can rot, which is internal change that flows out to good fruit because then the motivation will be from a place of true love for God and people and not a motive of self-justification before God and men. What Jesus is after is an internal change that flows out to real fruit. He'll say in the text we're going to look at next week, and you can just glance down at it, the Pharisees are like a cup that is clean outside, but it's dirty on the inside. What's that do? What good is a tomb that's been whitewashed? You know, you can whitewash a tomb all you want, but guess what's still inside? Dead things. That's the point here. You can be externally, visibly clean, but inside you could still be very dead. When it comes to sin, you could eliminate some bad things, but unless the sin is uprooted and replaced by Jesus, it will be replaced by some other sin that is eight times worse. Jesus, you understand, is not after a sweep job where you're clean but still empty. (laughs) Because empty spaces don't stay empty for long, do they? A vacuum has to be filled with something Richard Lovelace said that when men's hearts are not full of God, they become full of the world around like a sponge full of clean water that has been squeezed empty and thrown into a mud puddle. See, Jesus doesn't mean to make you into a clean house. He means to renovate the whole place. And herein lies the reason we don't like change, right? We want Jesus to clean us up a little bit. We'd like it to be, we'd like it if you would just tidy up. Help us have a better marriage. 
Uh, help me have a more adjusted and su- successful kids. Have, help me have a good career and just an overall better version of who we already are or want to be. But Jesus isn't some self-help guru who is interested in being a divine butler to help us achieve our self-centered goals. He has different plans in mind, namely a complete overhaul. To take over, not to take requests. Total surrender is what he's after, and he has no plans to negotiate terms. C.S. Lewis illustrated it by saying that we are a living house. When God comes in to rebuild the house, he starts by doing things we don't so much mind, right, and can understand him doing, like some odd jobs, patching a leaky roof, fixing some drains, and so on. None of that surprises you. You you know these things need to be done. But then you find he doesn't stop. Presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation, says Lewis, is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. One of the primary means by which Jesus means to renovate us as he fills us with himself and supplants the ugliness of sin with the beauty of his person is found in what happens next in this text. See, as Jesus is speaking, a lady interrupts him and gives a beatitude. She says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. Now, complimenting the mother of someone because of the deeds of their child was pretty common in this context, okay? The woman is paying tribute to both Mary and Jesus, and she is correct, isn't she? She's right. In fact, in some sense, she's fulfilling what Mary herself says in the Magnificat in chapter 1. Mary says in uh, chapter 1, 46 through 48, my soul exalts the Lord, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the humble state of his servant, for behold... From this time on, all generations will count me blessed. So the woman is right. Mary is blessed to have bore the Savior of the world. And Jesus' reply, now we look at it, we might seem like some kind of a rebuke. But really, Jesus is saying in his own beatitude, yes, but true blessedness comes from those who hear the word of God and obey it. In other words, the woman's remark is correct, but it's not exhaustive. More must be said. True blessedness, says Jesus, does not come from familial affiliations to him. True blessedness comes rather from hearing and obeying what? The word of God. This is where blessing is found. You want to be blessed? Hear and do the word of God. You want to eradicate sin and replace it with the beauty of Jesus? Hear and do the word of God. This is what Jesus says. James Edwards says this in his commentary, hearing and obeying the word of God is that present in Jesus transformed life according to the criteria of the kingdom of God. And where the kingdom of God is present, there is no vacancy for other kingdoms, dominions, and lords. In fact, we can say that if you want to synthesize, I think this is fair to say, if you want to synthesize what discipleship is about, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it would be like this. Hear and do the word of God. Jesus has been saying this over and over again in Luke, hasn't he? Do you remember? Let's think about a couple examples. In chapter 6, Jesus gives the illustration of a house built on rock and a house built with no foundation. And then the one on the rock survives all the torrent of elements, and while the one without a foundation does what? 
it falls. What's the one on the rock? You know what Jesus says? The one who hears the word and does it. Remember the parable of the sower in chapter 8? The sower tosses the seed to and fro on various soils. One is trampled underfoot and devoured by birds. One fell on the rock, had no root, withered away. One fell among the thorns and was choked. One fell on good soil and grew and bore good fruit. That's the only good soil, right? Who is that? The one who hears the word of God and does it. When Jesus was teaching the crowds and they were around them and word got to him that his mother and brother were trying to see him. You remember what he said? My mother and brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. And think of what has come immediately before this text. We've seen the story of the Good Samaritan. We saw Mary as an example, sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word. We saw teachings on how to pray. All of these illustrate discipleship. In other words, they show that blessing resides in an obedient response to Jesus, whether in the care of others, in attention to Jesus, or in discourse with God in prayer. Hearing the word of God, hearing what the word of God says, hearing what Jesus says and commands is the task of the disciple. The task is not to make it say what we want it to say or to find a way around the commands of Scripture as some try to do. Hearing the Word means discerning it rightly, what it actually says, not what we wished it would say. And then what? It's not enough to merely hear the Word. We must do what? Obey it. Now, I know obedience is like a bad word in our modern world, isn't it? I know even some professing Christians are convinced that grace means we kick our feet up, enjoy the promise of heaven, and thus toss out all obedience as unnecessary and restrictive. And that all sounds really nice, doesn't it? On the surface, doesn't doing nothing (coughs) or doing whatever we want while we get heaven thrown in, that's the perfect deal. Is that not the perfect deal? But only if you see obedience to the king of the universe who loved us to the point that he entered flesh to die in our place as unreasonable. Only if you bastardize grace as a way out of obedience rather than a way into deeper, joyful obedience rooted in love. What if you see, what if you see that Jesus is cosmic Lord and loving Savior who knows what's best for us? What if you realize that the fact that we are so radically depraved and so helplessly lost that he had to be our substitute for us to be redeemed is a sure sign that we do not, in fact, know what is best. What if you realize that Jesus is the kingdom of God shown up and is working by the finger of God and that he has to come and renovate us rather than marginally improving us? What if you realize Jesus has come to us claiming to be the rightful king rather than a cosmic butler? What if you see that Jesus and the rest of the scriptures, for that matter, never separates love from obedience, but rather says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for Jesus. Do you know what it looks like? Obedience. That's how he, is that not how he showed love to the Father? By obeying his will. And that's how he says we show love for him. In that case, obedience will be a delight rather than a duty because your heart has been captured by the one commanding. Because then you'll see that you're obeying from acceptance and not for acceptance, which makes all the difference in the world. And if Jesus knows what is best for us, do you guys agree that he does? Come on. 
And he knows what's best for us. And he has redeemed us in order for us to pursue our created design pre-Genesis 3. Then surely hearing the word and obeying is how one is truly blessed. Surely obedience is a blessing and not a burden when one has proper view of self, Jesus, and grace. I'm reminded of a story about reformer Martin Luther. He was talking about grace for sinners, how salvation does not rest upon our good works, but upon the saving work of Jesus Christ. And one of his students objected and said to Luther, it's, if what you're saying is true, then we may live as we want. And Luther replied, yes, now what do you want? That, that's, there's the key, yes? If Jesus comes in and renovates our hearts more and more, what we will want more and more is to obey the one whom our heart delights in more and more. Bernard of Clairvaux said, what is there in our love that God would desire it? Why would a king desire the love of a woman who is in debt and diseased? God does not need our love. There are angels enough in heaven to adore and love him. It does not add the least of amount to his essential blessedness. He does not need our love, and yet he seeks it. Why does he desire, to give, uh, desire us to give him our heart? It's not that he needs our heart and love, but he desires our heart so that he may make it better. God calls us to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength because it's not only our created purpose, but because it is for our benefit. Don't you see? And love looks like joyful obedience. We must put obedience in proper perspective. Obedience doesn't save nor keep us in the love of God, but if Jesus is what we want, then obeying him out of love for his person is what we want too. Because the more we do what he says, the more we get of him, and the more we get of him, the more we will want, and the more we will be blessed. It's a blessing to hear the word and obey, says Jesus, not a burden. G.K. Chesterton had a great illustration where he pictures a plateau. I want you to picture a plateau or an island in the sea that's high above the water. And there's a wall around the cliff, okay? There's a wall around the cliff's edge. And on this flat plain, on top of this cliff, there are children and they're playing games and they're ruckus and they're running and they're laughing and they're throwing themselves into these walls. And they're just having the best time going crazy on this plateau. And Chester just said, those who want to do away with the commandments of Scripture and of Christ are like people who want to tear down the walls on the cliff of this island, thinking that this will make the children free. They see the walls all wrong. They think they're restrictive, but what purpose do they actually serve? Chesterton said that what happens instead of the kids being freer when the walls come down is the kids no longer play and laugh and enjoy themselves. Instead, the kids huddle themselves together in the center of the plateau because they're afraid of blowing off the edge. The walls were there in order to provide a safe space in which the people of God then as now can live, and there's freedom in that. The absence of walls isn't freedom. No obedience isn't freedom. No walls will cause us to fear or go over the edge. Over the edge looks like serving the wrong master, whether that be self or something else. Christ commands our walls not to restrict, but for the people to enjoy as it was life as it was meant to be rather than falling into harmful and destructive sins. Do you see? Hearing and obeying helps us change, but to change more and more into who we were meant to be according to Jesus. And he knows best, does he not? 
We're going, we're going to listen to someone, aren't we? Whether to our hearts that are fallen, or our feelings which are fallen, or our desires which are fallen, or to the influence of the world which is fallen, who should we listen to? Who should we hear and obey? In whose words can we find life? If we don't listen to Jesus, whom will we listen to? See, that's the question in verses 29 and 32, isn't it? Let's read it again since it's been like three hours since we read it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is the evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I've been to many conferences And I've been to many Christian bookstores, and I have seen many books sold at these conferences and stores about church leadership and about church marketing. And they'll say, if you want to grow your church, do this strategy or that, have this marketing and sloganeering. When you present the message, do it easily packaged and in palatable ways that aren't offensive. What none of them will say is to do what Jesus does here, which is when the crowds are growing... Tell them that they're evil. You see that in verse 29? When the crowds were increasing, when his following was growing, when his popularity was reaching its zenith, Jesus says to the growing crowd, this generation is an evil generation. But Jesus is no seller of spiritual goods and services. He's no peddler of spiritual snake oil. He has no interest in growing a crowd if they're going to continue to languish in their sins and miss out on the kingdom of God that he has brought. He isn't telling them they're evil to be cruel. He's telling them they are evil because they are evil. He wants them to come to grips with their wickedness so that they can come to grips with this monumentous thing that is happening in their midst. He wants them to realize how wicked their desire for a sign is when God in flesh has shown up. Do you realize, says Jesus, that someone greater than Jonah is here Do you realize, says Jesus, that someone greater than Solomon has come? Jesus tells them that they will not get a sign beyond the sign of Jonah. Now, what is that? Here, the sign of Jonah should be understood as the preaching of Jonah, i.e., the message of judgment and repentance. What did Jonah preach? That unless the wicked city of Nineveh repented, God would judge them. And what happened? The people turned from their wickedness. They repented in sackcloth and ash. Jesus is far superior to Jonah, and he comes to this wicked generation, and he preaches a superior message, but one that has a similar theme. Do you see? Turn from your sins and receive the grace of God. But whereas Nineveh responded favorably to this sign alone, the people in Jesus' audience want more signs. And this desire for more signs that they have is further evidence of their wickedness. Also says Jesus, another person from outside Israel, the queen of Sheba, heard of Solomon's wisdom, came to hear him, found him more than what she expected. And she responded to the wisdom of God. 
She too, like Nineveh, will stand in judgment of this wicked generation because they miss someone in their midst who is eternally greater than Solomon. For Jesus doesn't just dispense the wisdom of God, he is the wisdom of God. What's in view here is response to God. This is the point. Solomon and Jonah have in common the fact that they displayed a message. Solomon shared God's wisdom. Jonah brought his word. And both of their audience responded to God's truth. Will you ask Jesus? They must understand that failure to respond to Jesus is failure to respond to God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. To demand a sign when God in the flesh is in their midst is to demand that God prove himself to mere men. Instead of responding as they should, as Nineveh did with repentance and turning to God in Christ, the people are saying, we need more proof. Then maybe we'll think about believing. You know, there's a play, you can look this up online, uh, written in the 1960s by a German pastor, and this play was called The Sign of Jonah. And in light of the horrors of the Third Reich and the Holocaust, he pictures people asking, who's to blame for this? The play asks the question and draws both the cast and the audience into the answer. No one is really to blame, right? A stormtrooper merely followed orders. An industrialist merely kept up production. A citizen simply did not become involved. Yet in defending their own innocence, each of the accused becomes an accuser. All are guilty. Some are guilty by words, others by silence, some by what they did, others by what they did not. And suddenly the accused, accusers, all take up another cry. They say, we are to blame, yes, but we are not the most to blame. The real blame belongs much higher. God is to blame. God must be put on trial. And so the rest of the play goes on to show the people not willing to deal with their own need to repent, but trying to cast the blame elsewhere, and therefore trying to put God on trial. Unable to come to grips with their own sin, they pass the blame. God must be put on trial. God must prove himself to us mere creatures. See, the people of Israel are a wicked generation. Do they realize it? Even if they do, instead of responding to Christ with repentance and reckless abandon and a life of followership and submission, they say like the people in the play do, sure, we are sinners, but God must be the one who proves himself to us. Do you see the madness? God has taken the initiative to come and condescend to take on flesh and save a wayward humanity because of the indescribable depths of their wickedness and rebellion and because of the lavish love that God has within himself and humanity says, hmm, maybe if you just give us some more signs. While they convince themselves that they aren't actually that sinful, at least not sinful enough to repent. Is that not madness? Someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Moses and Elijah and David and Elisha and John the Baptist is here, and he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the people still refuse because they want a sign. But Jesus is the sign, don't you see? He's interested in playing the crowd's silly little game to bring a sign abstracted from his person. He is the sign. He is the gospel. He is everything. So Jesus says, you must realize that your refusal will be met with judgment from God if you do not repent. Love motivates Jesus to warn them, and love should motivate them to hear his word and submit and follow as it should for us. There is no salvation, my friend, 
without repentance. And there is no growth in Christ-likeness without it either. If Jesus is the sign, and if he is the message, and if he is greater than all the others, we must respond. And responding looks like repenting and turning over and over and over again. The light has come. Isn't that what Jesus says in verses 33-36? The light has come, and the light is standing before them, bringing the light of his word. Now you know this picture in 33 through 36, it's an easy one to understand. You don't light a lamp and hide it under a basket. No one lights a lamp and then covers it up immediately so that no one can see. Instead, you light a lamp and you put it on a stand. Why? So that everyone can benefit from the light. Jesus's teachings, this is what he's telling them, are not being given in secret. Jesus is openly proclaiming that he has come and brought the kingdom with him and time for repentance and renewal is now. But if you are to be light, you must receive the light. The light can't come from inside of yourself. It must be received from the outside and it will thus cause you to be illumined, healthy, and able to give light to others. See, what Jesus does not do is what modern Western self-help books and Instagram posts do, which is tell you that all that's missing from your life is tapping into your inner light. He isn't saying the problem is you have this inner light inherent within you and you're hiding it. What you need to do is unleash it. He's not saying that. He is saying you have no inner light by nature because of sin, but I am light and my word is light. And if you're going to be illumined, you must repent and receive me. You must hear and do my word. That's the only way to have light, else you remain in darkness. Jesus has established, yes, this is a wicked generation. They have no inner light by which to see the gospel, so they demand a sign which shows their unwillingness to believe. So since they won't receive the light, they remain in darkness, and unless they repent and turn to Christ, they'll die in darkness. But see, when one sees the beauty and truth of Christ, and they repent and they receive him, they'll receive light from him and will be able to negotiate the darkness of the world. You'll be able to receive instruction and be guided by God's word. You'll be spiritually healthy and single-minded towards the kingdom. You'll be able to use the light to chase off more and more sin and creeping things that lurk in your heart. But see, Jesus is warning those who have received the light of Christ to continually guard their eye. Those who would hear Jesus are to be constantly on watch that what they take in is light and not darkness. We must continually take in the word of God and we must continually eradicate the darkness that would try to lurk in us still. Daryl Bach explains it like this. He says, the light, the eye is a lamp in the sense that it is a doorkeeper. What the eye lets into the mind makes up the person. When such eyes are good, letting in light, then the person is full of light and reflects light in life. But if the eyes are bad, letting nothing come in, then the body is a dark place, since our inclinations, unled by divine revelation, take us in destructive directions. Not only does light illumine and reveal and chase away dark, but light received is meant to be reflective, yes? The disciple is meant to stay in the light in order to grow like a tree, but the disciple is thus meant to reflect that light received to a world in darkness like the moon reflects the sunlight in the darkness of night. The only way to reflect the light and be inwardly renewed by the light is to intentionally be exposed to it. You see? 
You may have heard of the man. Have you heard of this man who was traveling abroad? He brought his wife a matchbox that he said would glow in the dark. He gave it to her, and she did what we would all probably do upon receiving this gift, right? She turned out the lights to see if it would glow, but when she turned the lights off, it didn't glow at all. And they both thought they had been cheated until the wife noticed some French words on the box, and she had a friend translate them. And what the word said on the box was, if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. So the light had to charge it before it would shine at night. So it is with us. Jesus means to make us new. And that can only happen if we see his person and are overcome by his beauty and truth and repent and turn from our wicked ways, expose ourselves to the word, and hear it and respond in glad obedience. See, I am under no delusion that if I stand up here and yell at you for 50 minutes to say, get better, that you will get better. I know that does not work, which is why I am presenting before you the beauty and splendor of Jesus Christ. Because I believe if you stare at his radiance and beauty for long, you will change. To just be exposed to the light, you will shine at night. It's then that we could be light to a community and world in darkness, pointing people to a greater Jonah and a greater Solomon and the greatest of all, Jesus Christ the King. Allow me to close with this quote. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite people from history, Scottish pastor named Robert Murray Machane, writing to a friend, he said this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh.